Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. Last night, the final of the Theology Slam competition took place at St John's Hoxton in London. It was organised by the Church Times, SCM Press, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity and the Community of St Anselm. It was a great evening with talks by Hannah Barr, Sarah Pratt and Hannah Malcolm on theology and the Me Too movement, theology and mental health and theology and the environment. The talks will follow on this podcast and the winner is announced at the end. The winning talk will be published in next week's Church Times and on our website. You can watch the whole event on the Church Times Facebook page and on our YouTube channel from Friday afternoon. In addition to the talks, there's Q&A, judges' feedback and talks from John Swinton on theology and disability and Eve Poole on theology and consumerism. And remember, if you don't subscribe to the Church Times, try five issues for £5. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first three contestants. First up, we have Hannah Barr, who is a first-year ordinand and PH student at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. Um, Hannah will be speaking on the Me Too movement. Um, so please welcome Hannah to the stage. When you first got breasts age 12, the winks, the nice tits, it's a compliment. Show us your bra. How far is too far? That man in Oxford Street who pushed you against a wall for a feel. No big deal. The shame to be so easily caught, the my fault, my fault mantra you recited into your pillow for years. Enough tears enough silence. It was all of us, but we never knew. Take my hands, we can say it together. Me too, me too, me too. These are the words of poet Sarah Doyle in an anthology titled Hashtag Me Too. One of hundreds of thousands of voices saying me too to experiences of sexual assault and harassment. Me Too began in 2006 with civil rights activist Tarana Burke, but gained significant momentum and attention in late 2017. The Me Too movement is essential, complex and flawed. It's a movement from which Christians and the church aren't exempt. There's also hashtag church too, dedicated to Me Too stories from Christians and within Christian contexts. As Christians, we cannot view Me Too from a distance. We are intimately connected to it, not just because of Church Too, but because of our universal call to responsibility. The ethical life is driven by questions. These might be teleological, what is the goal? Or deontological, what is the law? Theologian Richard Niebuhr, however, argues that the ethical question raised at critical junctures in scripture is actually, what is happening? Followed by, what is the right response to what is happening? With Me Too, our response lies in our call to responsibility. The ethical call to responsibility is in being bound to your neighbor, to God, and being yourself utterly free. How we exercise our freedom within those relational bonds is how we live the responsible and ethical life. So we have a responsibility for others. 
We are made in the image of God, Imago Dei, made in the image of relationship as God is Trinity. This relationship can be described as perichoretic, a perfect, equal, mutual dance, if you like, between the persons of the Trinity, one in which we are called to join in. With Me Too, our responsibility is both to and for our neighbour in relationship. Um, but in our post-lapsarian or post-fall world, this relationality has been broken. Me Too is in part a call back to relationality. It was all of us, but we never knew. Relationality through sharing stories helps restore those isolated for abuse because now they know they're not alone. We must take our responsibility for our neighbour seriously because isolation casts doubt on being made in the image of God, reinforcing the lies said over people by abusers and accusers. Our response must be to truly listen to them and then journey with them from isolation back into the dance. It takes patience and perseverance. We can only move as fast as the healing of the most injured. But we also have a responsibility for ourselves. In the incarnation, Jesus shows us the inexorable potential of what it means to be human, the infinite level of justice possible when we use our freedom in obligation to those to whom we are bound. With Me Too, our responsibility for ourselves must focus on our power. We all have power, though not equally. Our gender, race, class, the way our bodies and minds work, plus a whole host of other factors determine how much power we are afforded. This human power is intoxicating. Left unchecked, it's like following a sat-nav whose final destination is desire for mastery and domination over another. It's what's known in Christian ethics as wrongly ordered desire. What we need to do is cultivate a habit of power literacy. This means recognizing what power we have, the ways intentional and not we use it, and learning how to divest it from being power over another, emptying it into being power with and for another. This self-emptying of power comes from kenosis, from the Christological Acts in Philippians 2, where Jesus emptied himself even to death on a cross. Kenotic power responsibility helps make restored perichoretic participation of all a possibility. You might be thinking, what has this got to do with me too? What has this even got to do with me? I don't desire mastery over another, surely. It all sounds rather insidious, but begins relatively innocuously. And that lack of power literacy, lack of responsibility for our power, is magnified in a church context, because the church as an institution is inherently powerful. I challenge you, search hashtag church2 online. The stories are hard, but must be heard. An 11-year-old girl tells her minister she's being molested. He asks her what she had done to tempt him. A pastor confesses to assaulting a woman. She's kicked out of the church, and he's given a standing ovation on Sunday morning. A priest says, there's no such thing as rape in marriage. 
because one flesh means you can't rape yourself. Me too. Church too is a hinge. And how we respond to our call to responsibility will determine whether or not this was just another moment. The nice tits, show us your bra, those daily aggressions, abuses of power in thought, word and deed have not stopped and will not stop unless we begin with ourselves. They're small acts, but they escalate fast. We have a responsibility to educate ourselves on abuse and coercion, to call out injustice, to advocate for survivors, and to realize when our power, personal and institutional, is part of the problem, and so make the necessary change. We must remember that sin means that none of us is beyond reproach. So safeguarding training should be worship, not a chore. We need to teach sexual consent in our marriage preparation courses and to our youth groups. We need to be the prophetic voice of healing, of hope, of redemption and sanctification, which transcends the hashtag and shares the good news of Jesus Christ. What the church can learn from me too is being noisy, being uncomfortable and expecting change when we demand it. The truth is the stakes are too high to ignore our call, our ineliminable call to responsibility, responsibility that is not afraid to hold the hands of those who have been hurting for too long. So all of us, you and me, none of us is exempt. In our freedom, let's follow God's call so that me too, church too, is not just some forgotten moment, but a permanent, transformative, powerful movement. Next up, we have Sarah Prats, who is speaking on theology and mental health. Sarah is from Spain and is a master's student at the University of Birmingham and a BA student at the University of London. So let's have a big round of applause for Sarah. To discover who we are, we need to look at ourselves from the context in which we have been created. Since God has manifest himself through the creation, humanity has become part of this dynamic mystery which is holding and unfolding the whole universe outside time and space. To discover who we are, we need to look at ourselves from the context in which we have been created. According to Genesis, you and I have been made in the image of God. And because God has manifest himself, has communicated himself through a Trinitarian relationship, why we human beings don't think that we also need a relationship, an otherness, in order to find out our true identity? 
In the same way that we need a mirror in order to look at our face, our outer self, maybe we need another mirror in order to look to our inner self. St. John also says that God is love. So we have been created from love. That means that our identity is bestowed on us by God's loving gaze, and that we seek love in the way to our, to our true home. What would happen if we suddenly stop looking at God, stop relating with Him? Maybe that we will try to satisfy this longing for finding an identity and love through other relationships that are not based on the divine love, leading to a less solid sense of self and a more vulnerable self-esteem. Therefore, God is the beginning and end of our human identity, our self-understanding and acceptance. God is our homecoming. God is the loving gaze that defines us. Recent research reveals an increase in levels of stress and sense of pressure among the group of people of my generation called millennials. Since social media has become a means for gaining popularity and approval, this group of young adults is ever increasing the use of such platforms. They are also spending a significant amount of time trying to accumulate academic and professional recognition and achievements. All these new trends have been related with a concerning increase in mental health issues. For example, Shannon, a young woman, earlier this year shared through the Guardian newspaper that she had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety during her teens. And she acknowledges that social media badly affected to her mental health. She said that seeing everybody looking so happy and enjoying their lives made her actually feel worse, like if she was even doing something wrong with her life. She expressed that this positive image that so many people tries to show through social media actually affects people who is struggling with painful emotions like her, but keep scrolling through social media like Facebook or Instagram. Now I would like to share the reflection with you. If my value as person lies only in the society or in other relationships, it is easier to see how my sense of worth and identity is built upon the comparison between my self-image and the social standards I believe I need to fulfill. Now, what if my personal value, my value as person, is intrinsically conferred on my being by the one who loves me the most, and I use him? as a reference to find my identity. I also would like to point out that this contemporary remedy for the loss of our true mirror, paradoxically, seems to fit the disease. According to the magazine The New Psychotherapist, this overuse of social media among millennials is resulting in a less solid sense of self, a less community sense, a lack of trust in others, 
and in feelings of purposelessness and loneliness. And then the vicious cycle starts because due to this outcome, our lives are more and more absorbed by internet use and online relationships, increasing the rates in self-judgment, suicidal feelings, depression and anxiety disorders. The Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal stated, man's true nature being lost, everything becomes his nature. Man's true good being lost, everything becomes his good. Maybe we could paraphrase this quote saying, man's true mirror being lost, anything can become his mirror. Man's true love source being lost, anything can become our source for, to, to find self-esteem. Maybe, just maybe, if we look up at God instead of down to our mobile phones, we will fear less the sense of being no one or being different than the rest or the lack of recognition from others. Is this actually the fear and also the solution that is dragging so many millennials into depression and anxiety disorders? Maybe if we get away of these current distractions and we plug our hearts into the infinite source of love we originally come from, we will finally find what we are really looking for, God's love being poured into our hearts. And eventually, we will feel at home. Maybe all this just depends in asking ourselves, who do I choose to be my mirror? Next up to speak, we have Hannah Malcolm, who will be speaking on theology and the environment. Um, Hannah is the project coordinator at God and the Big Bang, which is an organization that runs workshops for young people on science and religion. It's the new normal. I think, as a beloved pear tree, half-drowned, loses its grip on the earth and falls over. The train line to Cornwall washes away, the new normal. We can't even say the words abnormal to each other out loud. It reminds us of what came before. It's hurting. It's hurting in a lot of ways because I kind of think I'm not going to show my grandkids the way we used to do it. It's hurting me. It's hurting me big time. And I just keep that to myself. The land mourns, and all who dwell in it will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea disappear. Much of the Western church is finally catching up to this idea of caring for the planet we call home. 
But along with the responsibility to defend what remains, we cannot ignore those already lost and those we are now powerless to save. Droughts have pushed suicides in the Indian farm sector to epidemic levels and a temperature rise of just one degree during the growing season is linked to almost 70 more suicides a day. How are we to rightly mourn the loss of human life, perhaps on a scale not seen since the Second World War, or mourn the loss of our fellow creatures and the stability and beauty of the home that we share? Australian philosopher Glenn Albrecht coined the word solastalgia to express this feeling of homesickness when you are still at home, the grief created by seeing the place you love come under immediate assault. In the early 2000s, he was researching the impacts of open-cut coal mining in New South Wales and discovered that along with the land and health impacts experienced by the communities around the mine, they were also experiencing a form of chronic distress directly triggered by changes to their home. He realised that all of us, no matter whether it's a tree outside our bedroom window or our sense of our place in the world as a whole, can experience a form of unnamed melancholy when places we love get destroyed. This is solastalgia, a homesickness for what is lost, and climate chaos will create unavoidable homesickness for all of us. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis identifies a similar homesickness, suggesting if we find in ourselves a desire for something that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. It is tempting to apply this logic to the climate crisis we face, and indeed Lewis was right to identify such a desire. But he was wrong to say that we were made for another world. In fact, the opposite is true. We intimately belong to the rest of creation. This is the world in which the image bearers of God reside. This is the world that God himself entered. This is the world that God himself died for. This is the world in which God himself was resurrected. This is the world whose renewal we seek. Solastalgia, homesickness in a dying world, is not just a natural response, but the right response, the only response to the destruction of our home. It is not the pain of belonging to a different world, but the pain of belonging to this world that has gone desperately wrong. You see, the church is not the last stop for an elect few as we wait to leave a dying planet. We are called to be co-mourners with a groaning creation. For the people of God, collective grief expresses our sorrow at sin and death. It is a sign of repentance and an acknowledgement of our finitude as creatures looking to our creator. The church and the wealthy Western church in particular must therefore engage with this solastalgic grief for what it is the emptiness and decay that follows as a result of our sin. Now, I am not here to remind you to recycle more or fly less or eat less meat. For once, I am not going to ask you to respond to climate breakdown with a list of things to do. Instead, I am going to ask you to sit amidst the grief that you may already feel about our dying planet and mourn the brilliant, 
beautiful lives, both human and non-human, now extinguished by our violence and greed. Perhaps you can name them. Perhaps their names are known only to God. Either way, they are worthy of your lament. And yet, mourning is sterile without hope. The scriptures of the Jewish and Christian traditions have always expected the world as we know it to come to an end. But they have also longed for and testified to its renewal. The environmental protest group Extinction Rebellion has already recognized um, the benefits of grief as part of action. And I believe that grief is a vital part of having a vision for a renewed earth. Extinction Rebellion calls on its members to practice what they call the skill of brokenheartedness. I believe that as a church, we must not be the last to recognize the wisdom of this collective grief. But instead, we must seek opportunities to practice its right expression, discuss what those might be, and also seek opportunities to speak hope in the face of death. In the words of Walter Brueggemann, the prophetic tasks of the church are to speak truth in a society that lives in illusion, grieve in a society that practices denial, and speak hope in a society that lives in despair. We are a wounded people, and we walk on a wounded earth. As the body of Christ, are we willing and are we able to answer? So we come to the moment of truth. Can I ask the finalists to come onto the stage? Judges are also, I think, going to come up. And the winner. <laughs> How long can we drill this up? The winner of Theology Slam 2019 is Hannah Malcolm. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our